Okay, today uh, we're going to look at Zechariah chapter 9. And um, I've titled this message, Fulfilled Prophecy Builds Future Confidence, because we're going to be looking at fulfilled prophecy. Um, they actually asked me to teach this chapter because I teach ancient Greek history, and I happen to know how these prophecies, some of them, were fulfilled. And um, when we see fulfilled prophecy, this then confirms for us the truth of God and his word, right? When you see something happen 200 years or 140 years after the Bible said it was going to happen, and you see it in great detail, then this is a confidence-building uh, thing. So that's what the goal is today, to try and, try and demonstrate that. So we've seen eight visions and four messages from Yahweh in the first eight chapters of Zechariah. The book ends with two oracles. Uh, chapters 9 through 11 are the first oracle, and chapters 12 to 14, the second oracle. So chapter 9, what we'll be looking at today, is the first part of the first oracle. Here, God focuses on the Gentiles and the time of the Gentiles. The time of the Gentiles is the time between Israel's exile and Christ's return. And it's full of conquerors. It's a time of conquest. But it's also a time of salvation for the Gentiles, and it leads to the ultimate deliverance and salvation of Israel. And so hopefully we'll be able to, sh to see that this morning. So let's get right into the text. Uh, Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 1, the oracle of the word of Yahweh is against the land of Hadrach with Damascus as its resting place for the eyes of men, especially of all the tribes of Israel, are toward Yahweh. An oracle is a burdensome message or a prophecy of judgment. It's a particular type of prophecy. It's a prophecy of judgment. And so that's what we're going to see in these last few chapters of Zechariah. Hadrach here, it says that the oracle is against the land of Hadrach. That is Syria. Okay, so you can just picture that in the map today, uh, fundamentally. Uh, it is Syria with Damascus, of course, its capital. And it says that uh, Damascus is its resting place it's the resting place for the oracle. And this indicates that, that the, the judgment will be particularly heavy on Damascus. The, the oracle, the judgment, is going to rest on Damascus. Um, and so it will be particularly heavy there. And then the verse says, For the eyes of men, especially of all the tribes of Israel, are toward Yahweh. The eyes of men are toward Yahweh. This is a reminder that God will advance his purposes through these events. And that's the thing that we need to keep in mind all the way through here. There are going to be events, a key player is going to be Alexander the Great. But Alexander the Great is simply functioning for God's purpose. God is using Alexander the Great as an instrument to carry out 
his design and his plan. So God is advancing his purposes through these events that we'll be talking about. God has made many promises, but he also has a plan to implement them. And that's what we're, what's going to unfold here. He guarantees not only the end, but the path to the end. He's not just decreeing what will happen at the end, but he also is determining the path to get there. And that's what we want to see also today. He's planned all of history, and it all happens according to his plan. So uh, it says it, it's against the land of Hadrach with Damascus as his resting place. And verse 2 says, and Hamath also, which borders on it, and Tyre and Sidon, because they are very wise. Hamath is a, a Syrian city, a region that borders on Israel. So from Hadrach, Syria in general, and Damascus, it says, and, and Hamath also, moving toward Hamath is moving toward Israel. Hamath is on the border. It's moving toward Israel. That's the direction and this, by the way, mirrors what Alexander the Great did after he conquered Persia, uh, after he had his greatest, arguably greatest achievement, for which he's known as um, the Great. Um, he then turned away from Persia to Syria and went down from Syria, and he was headed through Egypt for reasons which maybe we'll talk about later. Uh, he's headed for Egypt for a particular purpose, uh, and a little beyond Egypt, actually, into Libya for a particular purpose. And so this is the direction that he is going, uh, down through Syria toward Israel. He is one of the craftsmen. Chris taught us in chapter 1 about the four craftsmen uh, that, the, that, the, that Zechariah, um, sorry, i got to slow down. I'm trying to go fast, but i got to go a little slower so I don't confuse myself. One of the four craftsmen that Zechariah identifies in chapter 1 is Alexander the Great. And so he is part of God's plan. The final of the craftsmen is Christ. And Alexander the Great is one of these four craftsmen that, um, that the book of Zechariah works its way through. So... He is going down through Syria, past Hamath, and then it says Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon are, are Phoenicia, which is along the path. This is also the path that Alexander the Great follows, fulfilling this prophecy. And they, it says, because they are very wise. Tyre and Sidon believed that they were very wise. They were very wealthy, they were very prosperous, and they believed it was because of their own wisdom and their own knowledge and their own greatness. And what this is telling us is that man's wisdom will not stand against God in his judgment. It doesn't matter how wise Tyre and Sidon are, they can't stand against God's judgment. They thought they were impregnable, Look at verse 3. So Tyre built herself a tight fortification and tied up silver like dust and fine gold like the mire of the streets. 
tight fortification, the Hebrew word for Tyre suggests that it was inherently a fortress. Um, the Hebrew word for the name of the city basically means fortress. It was a half mile offshore and had, a, had massively high walls, and others had tried to conquer Tyre and were unsuccessful. No one was able to conquer it. Um, this gives you an idea about it. So Tyre is off the coast, a half mile out, and it says that Tyre built herself a tight fortification, these massive walls, and tied up silver like dust. Tied up here can also be um, translated piled up or heaped up, which it is in Habakkuk. Do I have that here? Yeah. In Habakkuk 1.10, it means piled up or heaped up rubble. And that's exactly what happened to Tyre, is when Alexander gets to Tyre, he's going to conquer it through this. Now, we need to back up one more thing, uh, it's, which I don't have on the chart, so I can leave it here. Um, and that is when he says it, he, it, that Tyre piled up or, or tied up silver like dust and fine gold like the mire, this is like... Uh, when Solomon, Solomon's day, they talked about how silver was like stone. It was as common as stone. Here, Tyre and Sidon are so wealthy that silver is like dust and gold is like the mire in the streets. So they are wise and they are wealthy. And their confidence is in their wisdom and their wealth. And thus far, that's worked. Many conquerors have tried to come and get to Tyre. They haven't been able to do it. Her wealth and her massive walls and, and the spacing away from uh, the mainland has worked. All right? But it's not going to work against Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, as he was, one of the reasons he conquered the world so quickly was he would come to a region and he would tell the, the cities in the region, if you give up, then I'll let you keep your ruler, uh, and I won't destroy you, and you just pay me tribute, and I'll move on to somebody else. If you fight me, then I will completely destroy you. If you fight me, I will raise your city to the ground and sell ever, ever, all the survivors into slavery. And that's what he did as he was marching across the world. And uh, much of Syria, many of the Syrian cities uh, and other cities in this region, gave up. And they said, okay, fine, and he just kept moving. But Tyre and Sidon did not. And so Alexander then was determined to conquer Tyre, not because he particularly wanted Tyre, but because it was an object lesson. That it doesn't matter how powerful and how smart and whatnot you are, I can get at you. Just like Julius Caesar once built a bridge uh, in 10 days across the Rhine River, marched 20,000 men across the bridge just to show the Gauls that they couldn't get away from him, and then they marched back and destroyed the bridge. 
because he didn't really want Gaul. He just wanted to show that you can't go anywhere to get away from me. And Alexander is the same thing. These great conquerors, it's a thing. Uh, you, if you defy me, I'm going to destroy you. So what did Alexander do? He took rubble and he made a land bridge across to the city. He piled up rubble to, to build a jetty. And you can see that in this picture here, the brown thing going across there. That's the depiction of this. It was 200 feet wide and 20 feet high, piled up out to get to Tyre. Today, this is what it looks like. It's still there. And you can see all these buildings here. Those have all been built up on that jetty. It's actually the main part of the city now. Uh, but it was built, uh, all of this here was built going around the bend to get to out there in the far distance, which was the original tire that he was going to conquer. All right? So, that, so despite their fortification, despite their wealth and their wisdom, it didn't matter. They couldn't stop Alexander the Great. And I'm here to suggest to you that they couldn't stop Alexander the Great because Alexander the Great was God's instrument, carrying out his judgment. It wasn't so much Alexander the Great as it was God. God has said this is going to happen, so however unlikely it appears, it's going to happen. All right. So let's look at verse 4. Behold, the Lord will dispossess her, speaking of Tyre, and strike her wealth down into the sea, and she will be consumed with fire. Again, this is using Alexander as an instrument. Her wealth uh, doesn't matter. Her wealth and the wisdom couldn't stand against the Lord. Tyre lost everything. The city was, in fact, burned. It was razed to the ground. R-A-Z-E-D, for those of you who need to, a reminder. Uh, it was raised to the ground, the opposite of raising it, R-A-I-S-E. I don't know why the English language does that, but it does. Um, it was raised to the ground, destroyed, burned, and all the survivors were sold into slavery. And so they lost everything. They lost their wealth and everything. All right. Um... Let's go then to verses 5 and 6. So that's Tyre and Sidon. Ashkelon will see it and be afraid. Gaza too will writhe in great pain. Also Ekron, for her hope, has been put to shame. Moreover, the king will perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon will not be inhabited. And those of illegitimate birth will inhabit Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. All right, so these are a Philistine cities who are now in the path of Alexander the Great, fulfilling this prophecy, moving on down the coast, okay, uh, from Syria past Tyre and Sidon. And it's, notice it says, uh, Ekron, her hope has been put to shame. Ekron counted on Tyre for her protection. Oops. Didn't, didn't happen. Um, 
it says Gaza writhed in great pain. The, the Hebrew here is word for a woman in labor. So roughly half of you can understand that. Uh, those of us for whom the human race would have died out centuries ago if we had to give birth, uh, we don't quite understand it. We have some sense because I couldn't use my hand for a week after the birth of our first child because my wife squeezed it so hard. <laughs> she, didn't, she didn't scream or cry out at all. It was, it was, it was crazy. I just said, are you superhuman or what? She didn't cry out or scream or anything, but she squeezed my hand. And it was like deformed for... <laughs> so Gaza experiences this writhing in pain at the inevitable conquest that is coming. They're at anticipation of knowing that they were next on the agenda. And then it says, the king will perish from Gaza. The king will perish from Gaza. What happened historically? Alexander drilled holes through the feet of the king of Gaza, attached cords, and dragged him till he was dead. The king perished from Gaza. Ashkelon will not be inhabited. Uh, the whole nation of Philistia was dissolved. Uh, they, they were wiped out. And it's verse 6 says, Those of illegitimate birth will inhabit Ashdod. I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. Uh, Philistia was also shamed. The children that were left were produced by incest and mixed ethnicity. And that, was, that fulfilled this uh, verse as well, the, the, the prophecy here in verse 6. Remember, God is doing this through Alexander. Because Yahweh controls the rise and fall of nations. Throughout scripture we see that. Now these events occurred in Alexander's time, but they also had eschatological prophecy. And I put the verses up here for those who want to look them up on your own. I'm putting things up in advance this time because I'm going to move fast, and if you want stuff, that it's there, and then I'll just keep rolling. So the time of the Gentiles, which is what we're talking about right now, leads to fulfillment of God's promises to Israel later on as well. Fulfills the current promises, but also later on, eschatologically. And you can look at these passages and see very specific things that, that correlate with the passage that we're in right here. All right, so let's move to verse 7, because there's a, sort of a change of theme here as we get to verse 7, and that is the salvation of the Gentiles. So we've been having the judgment of the Gentiles in these first six verses, and now as we get to uh, verse 7, it's the salvation of the Gentiles. And look at verse 7. And I will remove their blood from their mouth and their detestable things from bet between their teeth. Then they will also be a remnant for our God and be like a clan in Judah and Ekron like a Jebusite. So what's going on here? Removing the blood from their mouth and, and detestable things from their teeth, 
This refers to various pagan practices that I don't have pictures of because then you would all be up, wouldn't be able to eat lunch. Um, this is talking about ending their paganism. God will end their paganism. They will become a remnant for our God. Those who are in the Northridge Bible study know all about remnants because we spent a lot of time on that going through when we went through all the uh, minor prophets. There's constant talk about a remnant. And frankly, people, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are part of a remnant. Most people are not. Jesus said, uh, those who are saved are few. The, the road is wide to destruction. Believers, those who have been given grace, are a remnant. And these people here um, are going to be a remnant as well uh, during this time. Uh, this is the spiritual conversion of the Philistines is what's being talked about here. Their paganism is going to be removed. They will become a remnant to our God. They'll, in fact, be like a clan in Judah. They'll be assimilated into Israel. Not irreparably disgraced. They're disgraced by their children being produced by incest and mixed ethnicity and so on and so forth, which at that time in the world was a bad thing. Uh, they'll, be, they'll be disgraced, but not irreparably. They become a remnant for our God. And then it says that uh, Ekron will be like a Jebusite. A Jebusite is the, those who lived around Jerusalem, the friends who lived around Jerusalem. They'll be part of God's people, the Philistines. So, the salvation of the Gentiles, after all of this judgment and destruction. But not just the Gentiles. We get to verse 8. But I will camp around my house because of an army, because of him who passes by and returns. And no taskmaster will pass over them anymore, for now I have seen with my eyes. This verse 8 is about the deliverance of God's people. This is the deliverance of Israel in this particular time, during the time of the Gentiles, particularly with Alexander coming through. So here's Alexander, this tornado roaring through Syria and Phoenicia and Philistia, and who's next in order? Israel. But God said that he will camp around his house because of an army, because of him who passes by and returns. And that's exactly what happened. First of all, when he says, I will camp around, this refers to a military encampment or protective military presence. That's what the language means. So God will provide protection for them as Alexander comes roaring through. And what happened in, in reality is Alexander left Israel alone. He bypassed them, which, by the way, he was not in the habit of doing. He did not bypass people. He just went through the world and just mashed people or got them to surrender to him and moved on. So what happened? According to Josephus, according to Josephus, the Jewish historian, 
the high priest showed Alexander Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 7 and 8. So Alexander left him alone. Daniel's prophecy. I was going to start with that today. I hope we get to it. I decided we had to make sure we get through Zechariah 9. But it will be interesting for you to see Daniel's prophecy, which is about Alexander the Great. And the high priest showed Alexander, according to Josephus, and so he left Israel alone, recognizing that, he, that the scripture was, from his point of view, validating him and what he was doing. It wasn't really that, but that's the way he saw it. So he's on his way to and from Egypt. He's headed back to Persia, but on the way, he's got to go through Egypt and go to Libya because he wants to uh, exalt himself, to use a, a biblical term. And so on the way to Egypt, he bypasses Israel, and this also has eschatological significance. Um, because God will protect Israel in the end times as well, when that judgment roars through the world. So, um, the last part of the verse says, and I have seen with my eyes. Now there's two things going on here. First of all, this is the omnipresent presence of the Holy Spirit overseeing God's plan. The Holy Spirit is overseeing these things. God is actively overseeing this plan. He didn't just lay out the plan and say, okay, Alexander, go do it. God's overseeing it, okay, first of all. Secondly, notice it's in the past tense. I have seen with my eyes. This is something that is done often in prophecy in Scripture, God puts things in past tense. You see it in the book of Revelation a lot, okay? And people get confused sometimes when they're going through the book of Revelation, they're trying to figure out all this future prophecy, and it has things in past tense. It's in past tense because God has already seen the ending. It's so sure that he treats it as if it has already happened. It, the prophecy is so certain, it's so sure it's as if it has already happened. And so sometimes God expresses it that way in past tense, and that's what he's doing here. He's seen the ending, and there's no doubt it will happen, and so he says it as if it already has, which also should make little things tingle in your spine. All right, verses 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10, let's read this and it'll look familiar. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Make a loud shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and endowed with salvation, lowly and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a pack animal. That part, at least, ought to sound familiar to you. Let's look at verse 10 also. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off. He will speak peace to the nations, and his reign will be from sea to sea 
and from the river to the ends of the earth. So we've been talking about this conqueror, Alexander the Great, who is part of many conquerors through the time of the Gentiles, but now we get introduced to the ultimate conqueror. The ultimate conqueror. This is talking about Christ's first coming. And I'm borrowing from Joab here in referring to this as triumphal and tragic entry. A triumphal and tragic entry. You don't normally see those two things combined because you don't normally have the first coming of the Messiah. Um, so the context, again, is the time of the Gentiles, a period of conquering and conquerors. Many conquerors come and go, but Israel is to look for the conqueror. Israel is to look for the conqueror who would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, not on a white steed, at least not until Revelation. It is this conqueror who makes Israel completely free and secure. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. This is, the language here is like a woman seeing her husband on a wedding day. Like a woman seeing her husband on her wedding day. Then make a loud shout. This is an outcry of triumph. This is welcoming the king. You might recall when Christ entered Jerusalem on a donkey and the people rejoicing and shouting loudly, welcoming the king and proclaiming him as king. Why should you make a loud shout? Behold, your king is coming to you. Foreign rulers have come, foreign rulers have gone through, but this is your king. Rejoice, your king is coming to you. And it, it, the Hebrew here for coming to you means in boldness, asserting dominance, claiming his throne. He's not just coming as he's showing up. He happened to be here. He is coming with a purpose to assert his dominion, to claim his throne. Matthew 21, 5, John 12, 15, quote this text at the triumphal entry of Christ, which is why you see it as familiar. And we often have messages leading up to Resurrection Sunday, the week before, when we celebrate this entry, and so we're familiar with this. And now you see where it comes from. The people recognized that this was their king. Matthew 21, verses 7 and 9, that's what they say. They, they recognize him as their king. And this the triumphal entry of Christ at that point is the precise moment fulfilling this prophecy in Zechariah. So we see 
clear fulfillment of this prophecy, as we will hopefully with the prophecies concerning Alexander. We've already seen one. Hopefully we'll see some others. Now, this conqueror is different than the conquerors who have rolled through throughout the time of the Gentiles. He's certainly different than Alexander. Look at the middle of verse 9. He is righteous and endowed with salvation. He is righteous. He has upright, impeccable character. He's not a self-seeking destroyer. Alexander was not righteous. Alexander was trying to gobble up the whole world and be the greatest conqueror of all time, which arguably he was in, in a human sense. This one is righteous. This one is endowed with salvation. He comes not to dominate and terrorize, but to save. This conqueror comes not to dominate and terrorize, but to save. He also comes differently. Alexander did not ride through Jerusalem on a donkey. He had actually quite an impressive steed that he loved so much that when the horse died, he built a tomb for it. Uh, anyway, um, it wasn't a donkey. Let's put it that way. And his horse mattered to him because he, even when he was king, he still led a wing of the, of the cavalry and, did, and led cavalry charges with himself at the front, one of which we're going to see later if I get there. Um, so this one, though, is lo lowly and mounted on a donkey. This would be stunning to the readers of Zechariah in that day a conqueror coming in lowly, humbly, riding on a donkey. Lowly here carries the idea of being afflicted or suffering. Perhaps you've heard of a suffering servant. Well, they hadn't, but they should have because they should have read Isaiah 52 and 53, right? Isaiah 53, 1 to 12 the suffering servant, the suffering servant, the Messiah, the conqueror who also is a suffering servant. So why does he enter this way? He must enter this way because this is how he will deliver and conquer through his suffering. He will deliver his, and conquer through his suffering and his death. which the people of Christ's day should have remembered from reading Zechariah. The donkey, not an impressive steed, uh, as was the norm for royalty at this time. Um, and also the colt and foal reference here uh, links the Messiah's humiliation with his exaltation because it links the, with the prophecy of Shiloh, the Messiah, in Genesis 49, 11. Uh, I'm just going to go there quickly. Genesis 49, 11. In the Messianic 
prophecy, it says, he ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. So this is links in their minds with Shiloh, another name for the Messiah, another place in Scripture where they could have seen this. So the triumph and exaltation and recognition of Christ as king included tragedy, as Zechariah had prophesied. But then, in a single verse, we go from verse 9 to verse 10, and in a single verse, uh, we jump from the first coming of Christ to his second coming. Verse 10 is about his second coming. So the, the readers of Zechariah should have known the Messiah would suffer, but they wouldn't have known that there would be thousands of years between his suffering and his conquering, his exaltation, ultimately. But that's what happens. In, the, in a single verse, he moves from the first coming to the second coming. They wouldn't have known the timing. First uh, Peter 1.11 says that the prophets didn't know the times. They wanted to know times, but didn't always know the times. But they could see that the Messiah would suffer and that he would then have victory. Now look at verse 10. It says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. This is God the Father speaking in this verse. And when he says he will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war, he will violently eradicate the implements of war. He will secure victory for his son. And this will happen where? From Ephraim, from Jerusalem. Ephraim is in the north, Jerusalem is in the south, through all of Israel. This will take place. So it starts out with I, and now it switches to he. The beginning is I, God the Father, and then he is God the Son, the Messiah. He will speak peace to the nations. He could destroy them, but he draws them to himself because he is the Prince of Peace. They know that from Isaiah also, Isaiah 9-6. And in about a month from now, you're going to remember it too because you're going to listen to the Messiah and other things that quote that passage. He is the Prince of Peace. What will be the extent of his reign? His reign will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. From sea to sea means globally. This is quoting a messianic psalm. Psalm 72.8 uses the same phrase, the same term, from sea to sea. It's a generalized term meaning across the globe. A general term for globally. But then there's a specific reference. 
We have this general term from sea to sea and then from the river. How many have river capitalized in your translation? If you have the Legacy Center Bible, it is, because it should be. Because this is not just a river, this is the river. This is the river Euphrates. And it was part of the boundary of land promised to Abraham in Genesis 15, 18. It was one of the boundary lines of the land promised to Israel, to Abraham's seed, promised to Abraham in Genesis 15, 18. And so that's a specific reference to the Euphrates, but notice what it says, from the river to, and then it doesn't have the other boundary that is in Genesis 15, 18. It is to the ends of the earth. Because the Messiah's reign is the whole earth. He expands the promised land to the Israelites to cover his reign, which will be over the whole earth. His reign, which will include that remnant of the Gentiles and this remnant of the Gentiles that are sitting in this room right now. He expands his dominion over the whole earth. So the Messiah initially comes humbly, but achieves world domination that all of the conquerors in between, even the great, Alexander the Great, hoped to achieve, but could not. This is the ultimate conqueror. So you can imagine maybe someone is reading Zechariah's prophecy here, and he's saying, okay, there's, you know, there's Alexander, and there's all the, well, I don't know his name yet. It's 140 years from now. It's 140 years from now that this is going to be fulfilled. Um, so I don't know who he is, but all these people are conquering, and they're rolling through, and so forth, and so on, and so forth. Uh, but what does this mean for me? Is God only concerned with the nations, meaning the Gentiles? in this time of the Gentiles? And that's what verses 11 through 17 are about. God's commitment to his people. God reaffirms his commitment to his people in the last part of the chapter, verses 11 through 17. The focus has been on the nations, but does God care about his people? Here God assures them that he's committed to them would protect them and fulfill all of his promises to them. So let's look at verse 11, in which he introduces that by saying, as for you also. Okay, I'm talking about all these other guys, these other conquerors, all these other nations, but as for you, as for you, because of the blood of your covenant, In all the talk about the conquerors, I have not forgotten you because of the blood of your covenant. I am inviolably committed to you. There's a covenant. I made a covenant with you. 
So then once again, he goes into past tense. Because this is so certain, it's as if it already happened. I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Set you free from here. The waterless pit. I have set you free from the waterless pit. Joseph was thrown into a waterless pit. God told Jeremiah to be thrown into a waterless pit as part of his prophecy. This is something like what they would have experienced. And I don't think that's MacGyver. So probably they're in trouble. But God has set the prisoners free from this waterless pit. And this is a promise of a new exodus. As he had done the exodus from Egypt for Israel, he's promising them a new exodus. They are prisoners of exile, even as they are coming out of exile, they still have been prisoners of exile and in certain senses are still prisoners of the exile. And they are, they're in a time dominated by the Gentiles. They're not free, they're dominated by the surrounding uh, conquerors. But God will deliver them. As he delivered Joseph and Jeremiah from the waterless pit, he will deliver his people. The past tense is because it's so certain. So verse 12, he says, Return to the stronghold, O prisoners who have the hope. This very day I'm declaring to you, I will return double to you. Return to the stronghold. This is a call to the scattered Israelites to return home. Return home. Come back to Israel. You prisoners who have the hope. This is the hope. This is the hope in God's faithfulness. His final deliverance. It's not just some hope. It's not like the hope of Ekron hoping in Tyre to protect them. This is the hope. This is hope in God's faithfulness, in God's promise, in God's final deliverance. This very day, I am declaring. This is the language of this is a very formal announcement, official, serious announcement, an official announcement. This very day, now... At this moment, in the time of the Gentiles, I'm declaring to you, he says, that I will return double to you. This is not a past commitment or a future commitment. This is to those of Zechariah's day. 
I will return double you. This is a double portion. Throughout the Old Testament, you can look at Isaiah 61.7, for example. Throughout the Old Testament, a double portion means overwhelming grace. It's just a general term for abundant grace. He promises that. Verse 13, I will bend Judah as my bow. Up in verse 10, by the way, he cut off the bow of war of the others. But now he will bend Judah, he says, as my bow. I will fill the bow with Ephraim. So Judah and Ephraim become bows now. They'll be entire nations empowered against their enemies. They will be like arrows in God's quiver. And I will rouse up your sons, O Zion, against your son, against your sons, O Greece. And I will make you like a mighty man's sword. When it says against your sons, O Greece, we already know the, the fulfillment of this prophecy. This prophecy was fulfilled during the intertestamental period, the period between the Old and New Testament in the Maccabean Revolt. When the Maccabees overthrew the Greeks who had taken over, it's still celebrated today in what holiday? Hanukkah. Hanukkah. This is a prophecy of the event, which we now celebrate, some do, as Hanukkah. So we've already seen that fulfillment. The mighty man's sword refers to immense power. Mighty man is an important concept in the Old Testament. Remember David and his mighty men. God, he says, will make you like a mighty man's sword. Israel will be have immense power and be immense and um, amazing fighters. So God is committed to his people even during the time of the Gentiles. But then we get another jump in verse 14. Then Yahweh will appear over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning, and the Lord Yahweh will blow the trumpet and will go in the storm winds of the south. This jumps to the end times. So not only is God committed to Israel now, in, in Zechariah's time, during the time of the Gentiles, but he will be committed to Israel in the end, as he promised as well. And that's what's referenced here. Yahweh will appear. He will make himself visibly manifest. His arrow, though Yahweh used his people as arrows against the Greeks, as we just read with Judah and Ephraim, and used them as arrows to fulfill that prophecy against the Greeks in the Maccabean Revolt, in the end, God will use his own supernatural weaponry. In 
In the future, he'll use his own arrows, his own supernatural weaponry. And when it says he will blow the trumpet, your Yahweh will blow the trumpet, this is the terminology here means God himself will lead the charge. God himself will lead the charge into battle. And he will go in the storm winds. This is God's unmistakable fury. The fury that no one can withstand. The storm winds here are like um, the uh, sandstorms of that era, or of that region, rather, of the world. The, the sandstorms just wipe everything out as they move along. This will be God in his fury, will be like that. Verse 15, Yahweh of hosts will defend them. They will consume and trample on the stones of a sling. They will drink and roar as with wine. They will be filled like a sacrificial bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. Well, there's a lot going on there, but we're going to simplify it significantly. (laughs) So Yahweh will defend his people. That's the first part. Yahweh of hosts will defend them. And secondly, he will also be their offense. That's the second part. Consume and trample. Yahweh will defend them and consume and trample. He'll be their defense and their offense. And this talk about uh, uh, drinking and roaring as with wine, filled with a sacrificial bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar... This is all about the fact that this is all to satisfy God's justice. Battle is sometimes a sacrifice to God to satiate his judgment against sin. These two passages that I have listed here, I'd encourage you to read, and you can see this illustrated. Battle is sometimes a sacrifice to God. That's the way it's phrased. It is judgment against sin. And so anytime you judge sin, this is an offering to God. This is a sacrifice to God. And so when it talks about the sacrificial bowl, and it talks about the corners of the altar... Those are both references to sacrifices. The implements of sacrifices in the temple. Then we come back to the main point. Verse 16. And Yahweh, their God, will save them in that day. Back to the main point. God has made promises to Israel. He will save them. It goes on, as the flock of his people, for they are the stones of a crown sparkling in his land. All of this bloodshed is to execute judgment on the one hand and save his people. On the other hand, 
It's a two-pronged thing. The wicked have to be judged. His people have to be saved. He will accomplish both. He will be a great conqueror, but they are the flock. They are the flock of his people. He is a great conqueror, but also his people's good shepherd. A conqueror and a shepherd. And he will care for them, as the last couple of lines say, that he will care for them as something precious, something valuable. They're like the stones of a crown sparkling in his land. They're, they are precious. They're valuable. He will care for them as his flock and as something precious. In verse 17, as a result, for what goodness and beauty will be theirs? Grain will make the choice men flourish, and new wine the virgins. Goodness, the benefits that Israel receive, tremendous prosperity and blessing, Beauty, the term here can be either the attractiveness of a woman or the nobility of a king. Either way, it's a reflection of dignity. Beauty. Grain, there'll be grain There'll be new wine, the bounty of the land. In this future, when Israel receives all of this, there'll be bounty in the land, food and drink abundantly. It will make the choice men flourish and new wine the virgins. Choice men and virgins these are people at their peak. I have a, a friend who used to teach at the university who was all about resurrection man, all about end times, etc. And his own view was that everyone's resurrection body will be the body of roughly a 25-year-old. If you die at 96 or you die at 2, you'll have a resurrection body that's 25. And he said that because that is the peak. And that's what this is referring to here. It's not referring to what he's saying. But it's referring to the fact that the choice men are men at their peak. The virgins are women at their peak productive peak, if you will, and it's also a reference to strength and purity. Strength and purity. These will be the people who live under this conqueror and good shepherd. 
So in the larger context of the book of Zechariah, in chapter 9, God explains to Israel not only that he's made promises, not only that they will come to pass, but that he has a plan to bring it about and that he's in charge of the plan. He controls it. It's not just an end that might happen some particular way, but God is running the show. Now, let's get to some things that are going to help you in your daily life uh, to further trust God. These are the things that are exciting. Let's go back to see about Alexander the Great. The book of Daniel was written 200 years before Alexander started conquering things. 200 years. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel prophesies four future powerful kingdoms. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And he starts to go through them as, first of all, four beasts. And if you look at Daniel 7 verse 6, we get to the Greek part. Daniel 7, verse 6. After this I kept looking, behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. So the four wings refers to the speed at which Alexander moves. The four heads refers to the fact that he has four top generals that, will, that are going to become important later. As the, as the prophecy full, uh, is fleshed out. And dominion was given to it, it says. Alexander is known as the great because he conquered the known world. He conquered the Persians and the known world. Dominion was given to him. Go down, go to chapter 8. In verse 3, we get another vision of this same thing. This is now fleshing out that previous vision about the animals. And it changes animals, but it's telling the same thing. Chapter 8, verse 3, I lifted up my eyes and behold a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other with the longer one coming up last. The, two, the ram with two horns is Medo-Persia. The two horns are the Medes and the Persians who were joined together when the Persians conquered the Medes and put those two people groups together. The longer horn is Persia because that's the one that took over and is more powerful. All right, so that's what's being talked about here in chapter 8, verse 3. Go to chapter 8, verse 5. And while I was considering, behold, a male goat was coming from the west. 
over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. Interesting. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. The goat coming from the west is Greece, specifically Alexander the Great. And the reason it says the goat is coming from the, uh, from the west, coming from the west over the surface of the earth without touching the ground is he's moving so fast. This is a reference to rapid movement across the world, which was amazing how fast that he traveled. He didn't have motorized vehicles, and he was conquering people along the way. But if you study it, it's, it's pretty incredible. Well, I shouldn't use that word. It is credible. But um, <laughs> All right. And then um, it says he has a, the goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. The horn is Alexander. He's called a horn in Zechariah. He's called a horn here as well. Then look at verse 6. This is, this is where it gets really cool. Then it, this goat, Alexander, came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and ran at it in his strong wrath. This is the Battle of Issus. This is a perfect description of the Battle of Issus, which takes place 200 years after this prophecy. This is one of the great battles of ancient history. This is the battle in which Alexander conquers the Persians. Darius III of Persia had two to six times as many soldiers as Alexander. And he faced Alex, Alexander, across a waterway, a canal, called the Panaris River. So this is the way the, the battle was set up. If you're not used to looking at these kind of charts, just let me point out a couple of things really fast. First of all, do you see a blue line squiggly running through the middle of the thing in a diagonal? That's the canal. That's the river. The red blocks are Persian soldiers, large chunks of Persian so soldiers. The blue and the white on the right are Alexander's. Notice how many more and bigger red blocks there are than the blue blocks, all right? So Alexander is vastly outnumbered, depending on which historian you read, two times or six times as many soldiers as Alexander. If you look at the upper right corner of the chart, you see the word Alexander. That's his cavalry, that white block there that he leads. He's not, a soldier, he's not a commander who sits in his tent or watches through binoculars. He leads the cavalry. All right, so what happens? This is the Panaris River. It doesn't look like much of a river to me, man. <laughs> That's because it's today. The Jordan River doesn't look near as impressive either as it used to. Uh, over time, these things change. But to give you some idea of what Alexander was up against, with this humongous force on the other side that he has to get across this river is this, and then you see here some of the topography on the other side of the river. He's going up the hill, 
and he had to get through uh, that tower and power lines. <laughs> which made it particularly, they can trip the horses on the power lines. And, all right, so he's going across the river, uphill. You can see it better here as well. And that's what he's going into against. And on the other side is this huge mongous force of the Persians led by Darius III. Now what does the Bible say he did? It came up, verse 6, it came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and ran at it in his strong wrath. What Alexander did was, when the battle was going poorly, he took his cavalry and charged straight at Darius, who, by the way, had all of his best troops in front of him, as was the norm in the ancient world. Alexander took his troops, his cavalry, and charged straight at Darius. You might even say he ran at him in his strong wrath across the canal. And Darius panicked and turned and fled. And when he panicked and turned and fled, his whole army panicked and turned and fled. Hey, he, he knows what's going on. If he says we should run, we should run. And so he fled and he, and he, and he was so fast and, and, and taking him and so forth, he actually took his entire treasury and his family, Darius's family. Darius just fled and left his family behind. And Alexander took him, and that's an interesting story too, the way he treated his family, which was wonderful and whatnot, but that's another story. <laughs> Two years later, oh, say, okay, so this is what happens right before the events where we saw in Zechariah, in which Alexander goes through Syria and Tyre and Sidon and whatnot. This all takes place right before then, He's conquered Darius now, so he turns towards Syria and the Middle East because he's headed out to the desert in Libya for reasons which we'll mention in a moment. So this is right before what we've been talking about in Zechariah 9, the things that Alexander did there. Then look at Daniel 8, 8. Oh, by the way, let's read verse 7. And I saw it reach the side of the ram. It was enraged at it. It struck the ram and broke its two horns in pieces. And the ram had no strength to stand in opposition to it. So, he threw it, so it threw it down to the ground, trampled on it, and there was none to deliver the ram from its power. That's what he did. Okay? Then look at verse 8 of Daniel 8. Then the male goat magnified itself exceedingly. Well, what did Alexander do after or along the way? He magnified himself. He claimed to be descended from Hercules and from Achilles. Those of you who don't know ancient Greek history, Achilles is the ultimate hero of Greece. And so that was, there's nobody higher that you can say that you're descended from. He solved the Gordian knot Mythology, there was this Gordian knot, which was this, uh, a bunch of ropes that were all wrapped together in this incredible ball, uh, like, you know, if you get a rubber band pile that are stuck together and you're trying to get, take it apart, 
This is rope, thick rope, that was all tied into this giant ball. It was called the Gordian Knot, and there was a prophecy that whoever could untie the knot would be the ruler of Asia. Alexander intended to be the ruler of Asia, so he solved the Gordian Knot. You know how he solved it? With a sword. <laughs> he just cut through it and said, okay, I'm going to be ruler of Asia. He proclaimed himself, he went into Libya. The reason he went through Syria, Phoenicia, Philistia, Israel, etc., was because God had determined it. But from his point of view, he went through all of that on his way to Egypt and Libya because he wanted to go to the shrine of Ammon, who was, it's another word basically for Zeus, the king of the gods of the Greeks, because he wanted to be proclaimed the son of Zeus. Like, let's see, he wanted to be proclaimed the son of God. Interesting. And he was. He was proclaimed the son of Zeus by the priests at the, at the oracle there, the shrine there. And along the way, he was crowned Pharaoh of Egypt and built a city. He didn't have a self-esteem problem. Built a city and named it Alexandria after himself. Daniel 8.8. 8. Then the male goat magnified itself exceedingly. You think? But as soon as it was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. He died at 33, some of you know. After he went to Libya, he went back up to Persia, defeated Darius again. Darius had rounded up some people, a ridiculous force, uh, defeated him again at Gagamela using the exact same strategy. <laughs> he charged him again, and he fled again, uh, and defeated him exactly the same way. And then, um, shortly after that, after a couple of years, um, Alexander died at age 33. But he, his, Daniel 8.8 8, 8 says, in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. That's because his empire was divided among his four generals. The four that we saw earlier in Daniel 7, okay, the, the four heads that we saw in Daniel 7. This is, um, and this is the division of his kingdom into four parts. You see the green, the brown, the yellow, and the blue. Lysimachus was given Thrace and Asia Minor, that's the yellow part. Seleucus was given Persia, or excuse me, that's the, uh, the, the blue part. I mean, the brown part. <laughs> Get my colors together. The brown part. Seleucus was given Persia and Asia. That's the yellow part. Ptolemy was given Egypt. You might have heard of Ptolemy. 
eventually you get Cleopatra out of that group, who was not, was not Egyptian, she was Greek, coming out of this, but anyway. Uh, and Cassander was given Macedon and Greece, the, the green part. So he's got these four generals who divvy up the thing. Why? Because on his deathbed, they asked him, who will inherit the, the empire? And he said, the strongest. And so the four generals divided it up and then proceeded to fight each other for it eventually later on, which gets, which gets us to another passage. But finishing up um, chapter 8 verse t- uh, of Daniel, verse 20 says, in case you were wondering where I got these ideas, verse 20 says, the ram which you saw with the two horns is the kings of Media and Persia. Now by this is 200 years before. The ram is, is the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece. That's what verse 21 says. And the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. That is the first in significance and priority. So Daniel explains, this is Medo-Persia, Greece, and the large horn. Then finally, Daniel chapter 11, in verse 2, So now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to stand in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the kingdom of Greece. This is Darius III. Verse 3, And a mighty king will stand, and he will dominate with great domination and do as he pleases. That's Alexander. And then verse 4, as soon as he stands, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. Now, why am I saying this again? We already saw that, because there's something additional here. But not to his own descendants. His kingdom will be broken up, parceled out, but not to his own descendants, nor according to his domination with which he dominated, for his kingdom will be uprooted and given to others beside them. Not to his own descendants. Alexander had a son. He was murdered. So the kingdom went to the four generals. And then years later, when they fought over it and so forth, it was uprooted, and two other guys were, uh, took over power, Antigonus and Pergamon, because it was uprooted later, after it was given to the four. This is prophecy fulfilled. This should give us confidence in the Lord God, his control over all things, down to the very details. And I'm sorry we're five minutes over, but you should feel okay with it, right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises. Thank you that not only have you seen the end of the promises, you make that end occur and that, and that you have a plan that is 
carried out to the detail. And so, Father, we trust you, we put our faith in you, and we know that that faith is well-deserved, and so we have confidence in you and your promises. And we thank you, Father, for your word, for Zechariah and the message here to Israel, and also for the remnant of the Gentiles that we are able to tap into. And we, we ask, Father, that you would, in times that we doubt, in times that we question, that we would look back at Alexander or some other example of your fulfillment of Scripture and prophecy and understand that you are the God who controls all things. Amen.